You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Any disturbance to the environment has the potential to increase the probability that not only wildlife like frogs and, and mammals and other species uh, will become less healthy, but that that lack of health overall has downstream consequences in terms of our own health. And this is why it's called One Health. Welcome new listeners, and of course, welcome back returning listeners. This is Locally Source Science and my name is Mark Sharvari. I'm going to be your host today. And we have an exciting episode here for you today. We are going to talk about One Health. Before the interviews, however, Kitty Gifford is going to talk to you about winter birding. Welcome to Locally Birding. From the bird feeder to the skies, look out and look up. Well, today I was on Twitter. I know, tweet, tweet. And I saw some interesting conversation about binoculars and bird watchers getting judged for the quality of their optics when out birding. The poster, Jason Ward, host of Birds of North America on YouTube, responded to this binocular bias with the following. I started with a pair that was less than $100. My current pair is over $3,000. I was a beast then, I'm a beast now. The quality of the birder is not equal to the quality of the optics, people. And I couldn't agree more. In my first field biology job, I had some very inexpensive binoculars, but that didn't stop me from studying birds and collecting observations for science. So all that is to say, if you have a passion for something, don't let gear snobs stop you. Here's a tip. Hit up the Audubon.org website for some binocular advice in a range of prices. Also, ask around. Maybe someone has a pair they no longer use. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology in Ithaca has noted an increased interest in birdwatching during the pandemic. This totally makes sense. After all, you can bird from anywhere, whether looking outside a window, hitting the trails, or in the city. And, besides joining a local birding club, there are great bird identification apps, such as Merlin ID, that will get you started. You can also contribute your observations in apps like eBird and iNaturalist. But if that's too much to do, no problem. Just watch the birds and enjoy the connection to the natural world. It's inexpensive and healthy therapy. Now, this wouldn't be locally birding without a mention of what birds are visiting the area. Lately, it's the common red pole. This is a little five-inch finch. The small and energetic birds are brown and white streaked with a red forehead patch. They nest in Alaska and across northern Canada. Then they migrate into southern parts of Canada and the northern United States. Watch them fill up at your feeders on niger and sunflower seeds. The ornithologist Miyoko Chu wrote about common red poles in her book, 
Songbird Journeys. These remarkably cold-hardy creatures are well captured in her writing. Here's an excerpt. Common red poles live in some of the coldest places in the world. Boreal forests and taiga of Canada, Alaska, Scandinavia, Russia, Greenland, and Iceland, sometimes remaining through the winter and can survive temperatures that plummet to 65 degrees below zero. In a world where water is often bound up in snow and ice, common red poles bathe in the snow, fluttering their feathers in the cold powder and leaving pockmarks in the snow when they are done. Before dark, they sometimes burrow into the snow with feet and bills, excavating tunnels up to 16 inches long. There, they spend the night in a snug chamber at the end of the tunnel, then break through the snowy roof to begin the new day. Tell us what you see. Tweet at FLX Science Radio. For locally sourced science, this is Kitty Gifford. During the first interview, Esther Rakusin will speak to Professor Kelly Zamudio, who is at the Cornell Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is thought to have passed from an animal vector, possibly bats, to humans. This is just another example of how governments and scientific institutions must recognize the concept of One Health. This idea, enshrined in the Berlin Principles of 2019, holds that institutions need to recognize all of the health links between humans, wildlife, domesticated animals, and plants and all nature. One Health also holds that the conservation and protection of biodiversity provides the critical foundational infrastructure of life, health, and well-being on our planet. To find out more about how the health of humans and other organisms are connected, I spoke with Dr. Kelly Zamudio. She is the Goldwyn Smith Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and Faculty Curator of Herpetology at Cornell University. Dr. Zamudio started off talking about how she is interested in speciation, the creation of new species, and the role of disease in determining which species survive. I'm interested in how species come to be and also, you know, what causes them to to be lost, because those two things are basically just opposite ends of a coin, right? Like we have biodiversity becoming biodiversity through evolutionary processes, like speciation and animals moving to different places. And there's, there's a lot of work on the genetics behind that process of, of the origin of biodiversity. And the other side of it, though, is are, are some evolutionary processes that cause animals to be lost. And I'm particularly interested in disease because disease, wildlife diseases and human diseases both, often involve evolutionary processes and ecological processes. So for example, evolutionary processes might be things like potential that species have to evolve resistance to a new disease. And that is that is one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in. Dr. Zamudio's lab is studying how different fungal chytrid species are responsible for severe declines in the populations of amphibians globally. Here, she describes how the fungus spread around the world and how it has changed. 
in terms of my work with amphibians, uh, one of my interests in this realm has to do with actually understanding which species are susceptible to this new emerging pandemic disease of frogs, which is the, the, the spread of this chytrid fungus. So the fungus has now at this point, the lineage of the fungus that is highly virulent, which is a, what we call hypervirulent chytrid fungus lineage, has, is pretty much spread all over the world. And there are people, we have many colleagues studying them basically on pretty much all continents. Most of my work has been focused on the new world. So I focus on North America, Central America, and South America. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of frog diversity in those areas, uh, amphibian diversity more generally in, in, the, in those continents. And on top of it, we know from studying the, the movement of the fungus over space and time that it is truly an emergent disease that swept through some parts of those continents. So this particular species of fungus, that's a frog, we call it the amphibian killing fungus, right? So we call it BD, it's, that's the, its nickname. We collected samples of the pathogen globally. This was a large collaboration with a number of different researchers from all over the world. And we sequenced their genomes and we asked questions about sort of the order and uh, of diversification of, of fungal lineages. Like how did they start changing as they moved across the world, right? And so what we know is that um, the fungus probably arose out of uh, Asia the, the um, first divergences in this, if you think about like the tree of life of BD, of this fungus, the first, the earliest lineages are actually found in Asia. And then as the fungus moved globally, it mutated just like any other organism, right? And one particular lineage, which is this hypervirulent lineage that I mentioned earlier, uh, went crazy and went all over the world. And that's the one that's responsible for these large amphibian declines and extinctions that we've seen in the new world. The frogs that Dr. Zamudio studies are in the Americas. Here, she describes how the most virulent chytrid fungus affected the frog populations. In particular, frogs in Central America are believed to never have been exposed, exposed to um, the chytrid fungus before, the pathogenic chytrid fungus before, and certainly not the hypervirulent lineage. And that swept through communities in Central America, just like a pandemic wave, just like what we're experiencing now, right, as humans with coronavirus. Um, but not every frog responds the same way. And so one of my interests is trying to understand what is it about frog diversity and diversification, their ecology, their evolution, that causes these differences in um, susceptibility Different frog species can be more or less susceptible to the chytrid fungus. Here, Dr. Zamudio explains that it could be due to the frog immune system. Frogs, as any vertebrates, have actually a very well-developed immune system. There's quite a lot of similarity between our immune systems and the immune systems of frogs, which is why this um, sort of understanding of wildlife diversity is often so relevant to our own health, right? This concept of one health where um, there, there's unity in terms of thinking about responses of uh, multiple individuals, not just humans, to changes in the environment and to the emergence of diseases. Mm -hmm. But frogs do have an immune system, and um, that immune system can vary from species to species. As far as we've been able to tell from our studies so far, um, the big difference is that when the fungus infects a frog, 
when the chytrid fungus infects a frog, it has a suppressive capacity. So it is able to actually um, disrupt certain aspects of the immune pathway that help the frog um, defend itself. And some species are more prone to that disruption than others. <clears throat> so it's a very interesting interaction between the pathogen and the host and, and whether the host has that ability to escape that suppression um, uh, is ultimately, I think, what determines whether the frog is able to survive or not. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm speaking with ecologist and evolutionary biologist, Dr. Kelly Zamudio. Dr. Zamudio's group also studies how gene expression in frogs is altered when they are, are infected with chytrid fungus. We're geneticists in my lab, and so we use a lot of um, an approach that we call functional genomics, and that is to um, actually look at frogs that are infected at different stages of infection or frogs of different susceptibility that are infected and ask, ask questions about what genes are that host um, upregulating or downregulating in response to infection? And of those genes that are getting upregulated or downregulated, which ones actually have important immune function that might be underlying these responses? The susceptibility of frogs to the chytrid fungus might also be due to the way that frogs live together in their habitat. We also um, like to study disease, not just on a species by species basis, but on a more sort of community level basis. And this is sort of the, the ecological side of it. There's like the evolution of a response, like uh, this species has a really strong immune response to uh, fungal pathogens. That's one thing. But there's also community level effects. So just like in human diseases, right, where we have transmission between individuals and things like how densely packed you are, um, whether people are wearing masks or not, um, whether people are uh, in quarantine when they start showing symptoms, all of those are sort of the equivalent. There's equivalence to all of those things in, in wildlife diseases too, because in the end, wildlife and humans are not so different in that diseases get transmitted from individual to individual and all these, in our case, social, but in their case, sort of ecological parameters actually matter in terms of how many frogs get sick. There are some frog species that have been shown to be more resistant to the chytrid fungus, providing hope that some amphibian species will survive the virulent pathogen. There are some interesting patterns popping up in terms of resistance. Uh, there are some species that are definitely resistant, and um, there, there's research that is not out of my lab, but from the community in general, the community of scientists studying BD, that shows that some of this has to do with whether you're aquatic or more terrestrial as a frog. So some frogs are, you know, 100% aquatic and are in the water all the time, and others are more terrestrial. And that makes sense, right? We know that transmission from frog to frog happens via these zoospores swimming through the water and in sick individuals basically shedding more zoospores into the water. So an aquatic species is probably going to be more susceptible. Um, there's also what we call phylogenetic effects, meaning there are certain clades or groups of frogs, families of frogs that seem to be a little more protected. And that might be because they have more terrestrial um, uh, habits, but it also might be that they have uh, innately some sort of uh, immune factor, right? 
Um, a lot of people uh, have been studying the composition of bacterial communities on the skin of frogs and whether that might offer some protection. Um, and others have been studying uh, a number of different sort of immune functions that certain frog families have that might actually help as well. I asked Dr. Zamudio why humans should care that frogs around the world are being devastated by chytrid fungus species. Every organism in the environment is interconnected. And if we begin losing individuals of um, other species, there's potential consequences for us. So in frogs in particular, uh, the one health implications here are that any disturbance to the environment has the potential to increase the probability that not only wildlife like frogs and, and mammals and other species uh, will become less healthy, but that that lack of health overall has downstream consequences in terms of our own health. And this is why it's called One Health. So for example, um, frogs eat insects and most frogs eat only insects. So that is one of the sort of their, their largest part of their diet. Insects sometimes, depending on where you are and, and how exposed you are, are actually sometimes transmitters of diseases of humans, vectors, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a clear example of where if we were to completely lose frogs and unbeknownst to us, the frogs were having some major impact in terms of control of vector-borne diseases or vector-borne diseases of humans, we immediately are putting ourselves in almost two steps away, one step away, right, uh, of increased probability of disease transmission for humans. Another example would be uh, the emergence of viral infections, kind of like what we are living through right now. Uh, viral, um, viral infections often have a wildlife origin they're zoonotic, meaning they get transferred from an organism, a wildlife organism, uh, to humans. Um, and that's what we believe happened with coronavirus. And so paying attention to the organisms in nature that have some role in terms of the overall emergence of these diseases is one of the main goals of the One Health movement. To close out on an optimistic note, Dr. Zamudio points out that there is growing awareness of the principle of One Health. To leave this on a positive note, because we need to think about the future, is that in the context of One Health, we are learning more and more about what aspects of these interactions, these networks of interactions across species within environments and ecosystems actually matter. And I think we're making progress on that front. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. If you are interested in this episode and other episodes, you can find Locally Sourced Science on your favorite podcast app, or you can go to locallysourcedscience.org. Follow us on Twitter at FLX Science Radio. And if you are interested in contributing, reach out to us. So the next interview is from contributor Candice Slimper, who talked to Dr. Jody Glangloff Kaufman with the New York State Integrated Pest Management Program and the Department of Entomology at Cornell University. Hi everyone, my name is Candice Limper and thank you for tuning in to Locally Source Science. For this segment, I want to talk about a new bug in town called the spotted lanternfly. While this is a beautiful bug with all its spots and colors, it is posing a problem for some business people in the local area. 
The reason for this is because as eating plants, such as those in the vineyards and orchards, here with me today, Dr. Jody Gangloff Kaufman. Well, I'm a senior extension associate. So that means I take the science that comes out of Cornell University and other universities and I translate it. So doing science communication for the public. And the goal is to improve you know, the behaviors of people, uh, their reliance on pesticides, reduce that, but also make pest management more effective. And in this case, we're talking about uh, an invasive species, the spotted lanternfly, which has just made it to New York this year. And um, so we haven't done a whole lot of outreach on this, but next year will be a banner year for (laughs) spotted lanternfly questions and, um, you know, the desire to use pesticides to kill them. So So where is this insect normally from? Like, uh, is it normally in other places in the United States or? It was uh, imported to the United States in 2014 from South uh, China or Vietnam or somewhere in Asia, in the more tropical part of Asia. And it made its way to the United States, they think on um, rock that is used for patios, masonry, that kind of thing. So rock that was shipped from China here. Um, This insect is interesting because it will lay eggs on just about anything, including cars, telephone poles, and trees, and things that we move around. So it made its way to, I think Pennsylvania was the first place, um, around the Allentown area was the first place it was detected. And since then it has spread like wildfire through Pennsylvania and in the Northeast. And so now we have a few pockets of infestations in uh, New York, including Staten Island. And that was detected in Ithaca, unfortunately. So are these insects able to survive the winters? Do you, I mean, are the eggs pretty sturdy or? They are hardy. It's amazing. So um, even though this may have a more subtropical range, uh, it does have easily the capability to survive, you know, an Ithaca winter. Let's see. Um, It has the ability to survive a Pennsylvania winter. So so it does overwinter in the egg stage. And it's interesting when you look at the egg mass. If you're a hiker and you go in the forest and you see lichens on trees, it kind of looks like that. So it's, it can be hard to detect and people may not automatically notice it, but they'll lay their eggs on, you know, like I said, anything. So what kind of pest control are people are looking into using for irradiating these from their crop? Because it's a new insect, we didn't have pesticides that were registered for it. The thing we're worried about in terms of, and I guess, agricultural production are vineyards, you know, grapes, but also apple production and perhaps some of the berry production, the blueberries and things, some of the hardwood kind of um, plants, and also our forests. So it will eventually contribute perhaps to the poor health of a forest. We're in the research stages right now of looking at what pesticides can work for them. And there are some emergency exemptions for, there's a variety of of different things that people are using. And they're also looking at um, biological controls for this pest. So some fungal, you know, fungal pathogens uh, may help. Are they going to introduce these fungal pathogens or are they already innate to New York and Pennsylvania? I believe they are looking at ones that are native here or, you know, um, widespread used uh, both commercially and exist naturally, like uh, Bavaria bassiana. I should double check on that. But some of the very generalist type fungi 
can be used uh, in this case, or researchers are trying to uh, assess whether those are viable tools to be used in the field. The thing about this insect is that it reproduces quickly, exists in huge numbers in where it exists. So on a tree, the tree's bark will be lined with them. So both you can target them and mass, you know, a lot of them at once, but also they spread very quickly. And we had a windstorm and a rainstorm last summer, which I think effectively spread this insect into New York from New Jersey, neighboring New Jersey. So they're easily spread by weather fronts. Makes it hard to, <laughs> to control them. Are there birds that eat these insects? There's a little bit of research and anecdotal evidence that they can be toxic. So we don't know how much uh, a role they'll play in a, a, the diet of birds. I believe some information came out recently that dogs consuming them vomited. So <laughs> I don't know more about that at this time. Yeah, yeah I don't think birds will be a major uh, force on them, although other insects will be. Are there grad graduate students currently re researching this? Yeah, more in um, the university, uh, Penn State University. They have a very big program on spotted lanternfly uh, research and outreach, and it's a cooperation between Penn State and Cornell University and the USDA and a, a few other agencies statewide, like New York State Ag and Markets, because this is such an agricultural pest. A, a good group of people <laughs> coming together to support the research for graduate students and to support just mitigation efforts. So one of the things uh, both states have done, and New Jersey's involved as well, is to put information out to the public. So if you see something, say something, you know, that kind of um, approach to getting people to recognize the pest and to report it. And when it's reported, such as in Ithaca, those little populations that spring up can be uh, eradicated quickly by whatever state agency. Is there a number or um, a web address that people can call or seek to report something like that? The Department of Agriculture and Markets. And the web, uh, the email address is spotted lanternfly, one word, at agriculture.newyork.gov. And people can send photographs or just accounts, but they're going to want to know where it was found. Uh, they'll have to somehow verify it. And then if a plan is needed to eradicate it, they will do that. It's a large, beautiful insect and it's harmless. You know, it, it won't bite and it can't, you know, hurt you in any way. So, um, so people shouldn't be so alarmed about seeing them. However, what they do when they feed and mass is they suck the, the you know, juice of plants, uh, the sap, and there's a lot of sugar in there. So, and what they're after is nitrogen. So they, they poop out lots of sugar and we call that honeydew. And a lot of insects do that, but these insects, because they feed so heavily and in such great numbers, they can leave honeydew like layers of honeydew in your backyard. Eventually when they come to New York, people will be overwhelmed by them because they will leave lots of sticky honeydew and it will get moldy and it will attract ants and probably yellow jackets. So I think the next year is going to be a scramble to get you know awareness up and give people the right tools to manage them without hurting themselves and without hurting their pets and their trees. So we have our work cut out for us. How do you recommend that the public get involved or is there something that they can do other than reporting if they see it? 
Well, knowing what it looks like is the first step and knowing that now in the wintertime, you can go out and look for egg masses. So I don't anticipate the public going out to parks and looking, but they may look at their own yards. Um, they may want to know if one of the trees or many of the trees in their yard is an ailanthus tree. Ailanthus altissimus is the invasive um, tree, tr uh, tree of heaven. And that is the main host for this insect. And so there are large specimens, you know, all over the Northeast and people have beautiful large specimens in their backyards, that'll be the main host for this pest. Although they'll feed on other things, that is what they prefer most. So if anyone in the public wants to get involved, they might go out into their yard or their neighborhood and see where those trees are and then keep an eye on them. Plenty of information on um, our New York State IPM website and the uh, Penn State has a you know, sizable website. All you have to do is Google spotted lanternfly and you'll find plenty of resources and we're all tied together. So you'll find the same things on, on all these pages. So we talked a lot about the negative parts of this insect being in the area. Is there anything that's beneficial? I mean, they're an interesting insect. They're large, they're about an inch long. It remains to be seen what ecological effects they'll have otherwise, if they'll contribute somehow to a food chain or anything else. But in their native habitat, they're probably just any other insect. You know, they're not going to be running out of control the way they do here because they have predators in their natural environment. Other than their cuteness, I don't know that they have any redeeming aspects in, in America. It remains to be seen. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot more to know. We'll, we'll find out more as things go on. My name is Candice Limper with Locally Source Science, and that was a segment with Dr. Jody Glengloff Kaufman, who is a New York State Integrated Pest Management Program official. Thank you for your time and this opportunity to interview you. And also thank you to those who are listening into our conversation. Thank you. And that concludes today's show. We would like to thank Kitty Gifford, Esther Kusin, and Candice Limper for contributing. My name is Mark Sharvari. Science out. <laughs>